Welcome to the Fresh Start Church Podcast, where we exist to influence a nation with revival. Here you'll find preached messages from our pastors. We pray that the spirit of revival is imparted to you as you listen. To watch live, check us out on YouTube or visit our website at freshstartaz.com. And to stay connected with us, be sure to follow us on Instagram and Facebook. I want to keep on preaching about consecration, the all-in generation. Today we're crossing over. Today we're crossing over. I believe the church, I believe Fresh Start Church is standing at the place of crossover. By the help of the Holy Spirit, we'll try to give us uh, some clarity to what that really means to us. Joshua chapter 3 verse 5, we'll begin there. Then Joshua said to the people, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. I love the NIV version. It says, and the Lord will do amazing things. How many know revival is amazing? He said he will do amazing things. The next verse, six, and Joshua spoke to the priests saying, take up the ark of the covenant cross over ahead of the people. And so they looked, so they took up the ark of the covenant and went ahead of the people. Verse 9, then Joshua said to the sons of Israel, come here and hear the word, the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, by this you shall know the living God is among you and that he will surely dispossess from before you the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Hevite, the Perizzite, the Gergesite, the Amorite, and the, Je- uh, the Jebusite. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth crossing over ahead of you into the Jordan. And the priest, verse 17, and the priest who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the middle of the Jordan while all Israel, no small feet, somewhere between three and six million they say, Until all of Israel crossed on dry ground. Until all the nation had finished crossing the Jordan. The Jordan, the Jordan, the Jordan. 60 miles long. Possibly at this season because it was harvest time and it was overflowing its banks. Possibly 100 foot wide and 10 feet deep. And God says, it's crossover time. It's crossover time. It's crossover time. It may not look like it's a good time to cross over. But it was God's chosen time. They could have waited another time and it would have been nothing but a little trickle of a, of a stream. But it was harvest time. A hundred foot wide, ten foot deep. Forty-five miles an hour current. And God says, grab them and go. Cross over. I believe we're at a crossover. Lord, bless your word in the name of Jesus. And the people of God shouted, Amen. You can be seated in the presence of the Lord.
I must do a quick review because it, the message that I shared last week is the catalyst for every, everywhere else that we'll be going in this text. And that we began by looking at the thought that sustained revival seems to have a prophetic process to it. In this narrative, we see that it is first consecration, then crossing over, which we're going to look at today, and contending. And when you have consecration first, that makes way for crossing over, which positions you for contending, and all three together lead us to a place of conquest. So let us begin this morning with a call to consecration. We looked at this word last week, and we understand that consecration then requires a deeper repentance and a greater surrender. It is the place that we once again deal with our sin and ourself. The thing about being in a revival church and being under the influence of the spirit of revival is that revival presses the issue of consecration. I have to continually repeat this because most people don't understand that true revival experience, which revival is something that was dead being made alive and something that, that, is, that is alive being made dead. They think revival is just the manifestations and the dancing and the shouting and the glory and, and all and all those things are wonderful. And I wouldn't want to have a church without them or have life without them and be able to experience them. But that is not the greatest purpose of revival. The greatest purpose of revival is to take a dead thing and make it alive. To take the church of Jesus Christ and bring it to a place and back to an altar of consecration. A place where the people of God deal with their sin and deal with their sin self so that they may be able to cross over into the fullness of revival for us the promised land is the fullness of revival it is all that god is and all that he has promised and so so when we when we talk about us going over and crossing over we're talking about us crossing into the fullness of what god has for us in that season of revival and once you walk in that season and you and you have conquest in that season don't 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 get comfortable in your consecration because he's going to pull you back around on the other side and he's going to demand that you deal with any sin and the self in your life and bring it into subjection that he might consecrate yourself unto the lord yes so let me remind you with all that said again let me remind you that you are in a revival church So you're going to have to grow up and be able to live and function under the weight of conviction. So if you're looking for a, a, a church to really make you feel comfortable, I don't recommend a revival church. I admonish you. Don't even pray for revival. Because when you pray for revival and it comes and you have a love for the world in your life, God's going to start ripping it out. 
tearing it out. See, because revival is the finger of God. Y'all remember that? It's the finger of God poking at us. Lord, send revival. Okay. How you like that? It starts poking at the areas of sin that we have compromised in. And it starts to start poking at those legitimate things that are even wrapped up in sin, but distract us from the fullness that God has for us. Legitimate things. And he says, now I've got to bring you to the place of consecration. Um, And he starts poking our flesh and he starts poking at us. I called it the poke of mercy. It's God having mercy on us. Refusing to leave us in our compromising selfishness and sinfulness. Yes? See, consecration is surrendering to God what is already his. God doesn't ask for anything that's not his. Oh, he asked me to give mine. It wasn't yours anyway. He gave it to you. Everything we have, God gives us. You're not a big shot. All God's got to do is suck all the oxygen up and you're in trouble. And he could do that because he made it. But surrender, when we surrender to God, what is already here is just consecration. We see this in 1 Corinthians 6 when the apostle speaks to us and he says, Or do you not know that your bodies is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Who is in you? Whom you have from God and that you are not your own. Don't you know that? He's saying you are not your own for you have been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. See, God owns us. And the only way he doesn't have his way in us is if I take myself off the altar. Remember we talked about that? How, how, the problem with the living sacrifice is it keeps crawling off the... Y'all help me preach today. It keeps coming off the altar. And every time we get off the altar, God starts poking again and he brings us back around to the place of consecration and we have to crawl up on the altar and we have to become a living sacrifice. We are redeemed. We're not like our own. When, when he says that we're bought with a price, it literally means we have been redeemed. We have been bought out of a low state of life and brought into a place of a high calling. So we have been redeemed for a higher purpose. So anytime we go to the altar of consecration and we're called, to the altar of the altar of consecration, it's because God is getting ready to elevate us to a higher purpose of life and ministry. You see, God wants more of us so he can do more in us and through us. 
He doesn't just want more of us because he can demand more of us. He wants all of us because he knows if he can get all of us, then he can do more in us than we could ever do ourselves. So this, this, is, this is the place I believe many of us are in. This is why God is stirring this house toward consecration. I've said that. I'm not the only voice that is speaking to this. Many voices that have come into this house have spoken uh, about consecration. And that we have to understand when you feel unsettled uh, uh, and, and, and we just can't seem to have any kind of level of satisfaction. And many times that is because we know we are meant for more. But we keep getting in our own way. We keep making the wrong choices. I'm going to preach with y'all. Help me tonight. He said, well, we heard this last week, but you need to hear it again. Repetition is the mother of learning. You're learning right now. So when God calls us to this higher purpose, our delay in obedience leaves us dazed and confused. And we're just like, wait a minute, what is going on? And God starts poking. He's stripping away his church and us at Fresh Start Church. He's stripping away our low standards of things that defile and dishonor God's presence. Too much? I said, is this too much? Don't get comfortable in your consecration. Here's what we have to understand. Holiness is non-negotiable. See, we like to think we and God got it worked out. It may be wrong for you, but it's not wrong for me because God and I, you know why fear, trembling, we worked it all out. Well, I doubt there was a whole lot of fear and trembling in that conversation. But holiness is not non-negotiable. See, because God, watch this. I said I said it in PowerPoint on this, but now if it, I said it and I got to explain it. God is holy, holy. W-H-O-L-Y, H-O-L-Y. He is holy, completely holy. What does that mean? That means every part of God is holy. His love is holy. His joy is holy. His peace is holy. His power is holy. His wrath is holy. There's no part of God that is not holy. If he is anything completely and entirely, it is holy. And then everything else that he has, every characteristic that God carries, his mercy, holy. His grace, holy. See, it's not none of it. None of it is meant to be played with. None of it is meant to come after casually. It is all wrapped up in the holiness of God. And if you want his joy, if you want his peace, if you want his love, if you want his grace, if you want his mercy, if you want his power, uh, if you want his loving kindness, you got to get into his holiness. I'm not trying to say make yourself holy. He didn't say make yourself holy. He said consecrate yourself. Only God can make us holy. Then Ravenhill said this. I'm going somewhere, y'all. Just stay with me. Let no man, this is Linda Ravenhill quote. Let no man think fighting hell's legions 
Let no man think of fighting hell's legions if he is still fighting an internal warfare. It is the man who has surrendered to the Lord who will never surrender to his enemies. We can't cross over until we experience consecration, until we deal with the eternal, this, this, this man that is on the inside of us, bringing him under subjection, coming to a place of full surrender, because at that point, now we are ready to cross over into enemy-held territory and take on the legions of hell and let them know, I have nothing to lose because I have surrendered all. I think that might be freeing. Let me go. Let me not just run by that. I think that might be more freeing than we just realized that we have, we have surrendered all and we have nothing to lose. We have, I have surrendered everything. Have you, when you don't have nothing to lose, then you ain't, you ain't tied to your house. You ain't tied to your cars. You ain't tied to your gifts. You're not tied to your ministry. You're not tied to anything because I have fully surrendered it to God. You better get happy about it because the Holy Ghost is getting ready to slap the church with a great level of conviction. He is done playing with us and he is ready for his people to go all in. God, as I believe, is setting the stage for the greatest revival that this people planet has ever hosted. Where God is calling his people to a place of separation for preparation to be a demonstration of his glory and his power in the earth. He has nobody else but the church. He must awaken her with a revival. I believe that he's raising up a generation of, out of obscurity. And they will take their place in authority and influence because they understand that they are crossing over to take over. I said they're crossing over to take over. This, this is where I'm, I, I, must, I must deal with this. That we understand promised land Canaan was not just a place that God created to give to his people but crossing over wasn't just I'm going to get my promise crossing over was an assignment Not just an assignment, a prophetic assignment. To grasp what I'm talking about, you would have to go all the way back. And I don't have time to take you to the text, but you can write it down and, and deal with it on your own. But you've got to go all the way back to Genesis 15. Where God makes a covenant promise to a man named Abraham. 
And in that promise was included land. And God was so specific, he told him it would be a specific land and that the land would have much property and dimension to it. God gave it to him all, to Abraham. So if you're one of those people that struggle with this whole concept of Israel, the people of God, going unprovoked into somebody else's land, you are misguided because God did not create it and give it to them. The other nations that had occupied it were merely there because there was an absence of the one who had covenant to it. And so so we have to understand this because what you really are seeing when we're crossing over here in our text, what you're really seeing is the transfer of territory. So who has the right to do that? God. Our Bible says in Psalms 24, 1, the earth is the Lord is in the fullness thereof or everything in it or everything in the world and, and, and all who live in it. it. It all belongs to God. He is the creator and the operator of all things. He has the right to do as he pleases because he is God. If he wants to take something from somebody and give it to somebody else, he can do that because he's God, and and it, and, it, and it is his anyway, so whatever I have, I might as well surrender it and say, God, if you want to give it to somebody else, give it to somebody else, because I trust you enough to know if you take something from me, you're about ready to give me something else. So God had this right, and his purpose for doing this, as we see all of this playing out, was, was to fulfill his redemptive plan. It's bigger even than this crossing over event. Because when you put Genesis 15 and Deuteronomy 9 together, you'll see that Israel was given the land not because of their own righteousness. Moses is telling you this from God. Now, when I give you the land, when I push these other nations out to bring you in. And I'm giving you the land. It is because I am using you, Israel, to enact judgment on the wickedness of the nations that rule in the land. See, most of the time when we preach this, we just talk, we just talk about the fact that it was a land flowing with milk and honey. That, that it was a land that was their promise. Go get your promise. Go get your milk. Go get your honey. But you got to remember something. That is not really the greatest purpose. God took them in there because he created it for them. It was his land. In the absence of covenant, there was nobody in covenant. Abraham was gone. He was led over to Egypt. 400 years, he's dead. Now Moses comes on the scene. God makes covenant with Moses. Moses says, I'm bringing you out to take you in. I brought him to the Jordan River. And because of their unbelief and because of their doubt, 
because of fierce faith to go in and take it. They wandered around for 40 years. Another generation dies. And then here we are, Joshua and a whole other generation waiting to go in. But this time is different because they are a different kind of people. They understand what consecration is. You see, the first time they got there, they didn't really understand it. But 40 years after consecrate yourself, consecrate yourself, three days, consecrate yourself, wash yourself, get you some new clothes, quit having sex, do all of those things, consecrate yourself, consecrate yourself, consecrate yourself. And all of a sudden, he says, three days, we're going in. Three days, we're going in. On the third night, he said, consecrate yourself because tomorrow is going to be God showing off. You see, the reason that Abraham or Moses, apparently for sure Abraham, did not go in and possess the land is because I think it was the Amorites whose iniquity had not reached their highest level. So God said, I can't go in and take it yet because they have not reached their highest level of iniquity. So... 440 years or whatever it is 400 years till they finally reached their highest level of iniquity and God said their, 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 their iniquity is full now 40 more years is going to pass by as an unbelieving generation who choose their fears over faith. And now these seven nations and more who were in full pursuit of evil during Israel's wandering in the wilderness, their wickedness has now increased. Generation to generation. Now Joshua stands at the Jordan. God said, it's your time to go in. I'm sending my presence before you. You will dispossess the nations. You will drive them out. Or really what he said, I will drive them out. Now that the presence and the power of Satan is deeply embedded and spreads like darkness to a culture, it almost seems that the redemptive plan of God is at risk of being overcome. For thousands of years now, hundreds of years for sure, I should say, Evil has had its way. Darkness has consumed the territory. And it looks like there's no hope. But God raises up a remnant nation to go take his land back. Remember, it was his. He created it. 
But for his plan to work, y'all just walk with me. For his plan to work, his people would have to co-labor with him. Therefore, by faith, they would have to fight for every inch, a bloody inch. They would have to war. It wouldn't be pretty. It wouldn't be clean. There would be casualties. Oh, y'all not hearing what I'm talking about. The soles of their feet had to be firmly planted. An enemy held territory. Their battle would be waged against seven demon-possessed nations. Our battle is against ruling spirits. Any place the church takes on an attitude of complacency, inactivity, and uninvolvement in spiritual warfare, the enemy will move in and take ownership of a land that was never meant for him. Oh, please understand this. There are no squatters right in the kingdom. And when the enemy says, I'm going to move in here and settle in, they have no right to be there. Just because nobody had the courage and the faith and the authority to tell them to get out of what didn't belong to them doesn't mean it's theirs. You see, our battle is against the demonic powers that are standing in the way of the fullness of revival. And I'm about ready with the help of the people of God to take authority over ruling spirits and say, you know what? We have a right to revival in our churches. We have a right to revival in our city. We have a right to revival in the nations. Get out of our land. One last thing about this whole property thing is that when God made a promise to Abraham, he promised him prosperity and expansion. Somebody shout prosperity. Expansion. God promised it to them. Promised it to Abraham. Why? Because they had to fund the takeover. It just wasn't, it just wasn't a hostile takeover. It was a takeover to establish the holiness of God and the power of God and an unholy place. Can I preach here today? Now, now please don't, don't misunderstand me. I'm not talking about how we relate to the lost. I'm talking about how we deal with ruling spirits. People only reflect the atmosphere and the attitude of a ruling spirit. People act the way they act for a reason. 
Now I'm talking about the lost, the unredeemed. And sometimes sometime church folks, because they got a spirit of religion on them, that opens them up to the power of a ruling spirit. See, ruling spirits left unchecked create cultures of darkness. Okay, the Apostle Paul explains this to us. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. He says, your hand-to-hand combat is not with human beings. We all understand that, right? I said, right? Y'all need to talk a little louder to me. I'm having a hard time hearing today. Your hand-to-hand combat is not with human beings, but with the highest principalities and authorities operating in rebellion under the heavenly realms, for they are a powerful class of demon gods and evil spirits. Now, this is the key to understanding this, that hold the dark world in bondage. Not everybody under spiritual bondage even knows they're in bondage. They'll never know they're in bondage until they see somebody free. Our good friend, evangelist Sean Smith, in his book, I Am Your Sign, which you have not read, you need to read. We covered in our mantle class. There's one section of his book, I Am Your Sign. It's called Seizing Cultures and Spiritual Atmospheres. In that portion of his book, he talks about the draw and the sway. He takes it from John chapter 12, verse 32, and he says, and I, Jesus is speaking, and I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. 1 John 5, 19 says, for we know that we are of God and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. See, people don't, some people don't understand the, 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 um, uh, the, uh, uh, the length and the breadth of spiritual dominion and warfare. They don't understand that if you let Satanists come into your city unchecked and unchallenged, that they'll lose spells and hex. And when they say an invocation, they will invite the spirits of darkness to come have their way in your city. And if you say, well, that's not going to happen. It's only going to happen if the church lays down and acts like there ain't nothing else to do but go eat something good and shop. There is a draw and a sway. Shout these three words back at me. Culture, subculture, counterculture. I've talked about these many times, but we really need to understand this. When you talk about the draw, Jesus said, if I'm lifted up, there will be a spiritual drawing power. It will draw them. See, the draw is the pull of heaven. It's pulling people out of dark into light. It's pulling people out of crazy places that they shouldn't be in. Heaven, heaven starts pulling people out of the dark places. They don't even know why, but God starts reaching down. It's called the draw of heaven. But then there is the way of hell that's trying to pull people back into the darkness back into bondage back into places where there is no love there is no light and there is no hope the point is the church as well as demonic powers have the authority to set atmospheres 
The problem is, is many churches don't understand this, so they just let the enemy make anything he wants to make. Many churches have been fighting to get through a service today because the enemy walked right into their church and created an atmosphere of doubt, unbelief, and casualness. But somebody has got to say, not on my watch and not in my house. See, people make up cultures. People in a culture, in a culture, you see, this is our culture. They all basically beat the same drum. They head all of them in the same direction. They're all wearing the same uniform. That's a culture. A subculture are people that are marching to the same drum, headed in the same direction, but wearing a different uniform. They may look different, dress different than the average culture, but they're still following the same drum beat, still going in the same direction. A counterculture marched to the sound of a driven drum are headed in a different direction, are wearing a different uniform. The church is supposed to be a counterculture. Look, if we want God to split the waters of our entrance into the fullness of revival, then we can't be like everybody else. It's impossible to be set apart and blend in at the same time. If I understood one of the words for, for uh, uh, consecration, it is to, uh, to be set apart. To be set apart. To be set apart. We are supposed to be set apart. Mm, Isaiah chapter 60, verse 1. He said, Arise and shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Watch this. And behold, the darkness will cover the earth, and deep darkness the peoples. But the Lord will rise upon you, and his glory will appear upon you. And if you go on to verse 3, nations will come to your light, and kings will come to the brightness of your rising. This is a picture of a church in revival. It said, rise and shine, church, for your light has already come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you but watch out because there's more light coming and there's more glory coming Jesus says in Matthew 5 14 you are the light of the world you are a city a city on a hill that cannot be hidden are y'all with me we find nowhere in scripture where the church should be integrated in the in the landscaping of culture but that we should stand out in dominance over the darkness. We have this promise. Really, it's a principle. When the darkness and light crash, light always wins. 
It cannot be comprehended. Darkness cannot overtake it. It can be darkness and it can be deep darkness. It doesn't matter. God said if there's deep darkness, I'll just lose more light. I'll just lose more glory. Don't you see the condition of our nation? The conditions of the nation right now are demanding that heaven open up and pour out upon us greater light and more glory. Greater light and more glory. Get ready, church. Greater light and more glory is coming to the church. So, so then we understand this text better. I'm almost done. So we understand that, that Israel was a weapon in the hand of God. God was the one fighting the battle. It was his. It's my land. These are my enemies. You're going in. You're going to draw your sword, but I'm taking them out. So, so therefore we understand that the conquest of the promised land was not just a human act of aggression. It was a divine judgment on idolatry and the wickedness of these demonized uh, nations. What we see unfold is we see that there is a total purge of evil from the land. See, places where of human sacrifice, baby sacrifice, where they offered up sexual perversions as worship. These high places. It was an evil place. It was dark. Idols had to be torn down. The occult practices had to be demolished. They had to go in. They had to cross over. And they had to contend. I'm not dealing with contending today, but I've got to say this. I believe we're at a place of crossing over. We're at a place where God has had enough of not humankind. He has had enough of ruling spirits, destroying humankind, having his hate, his way with humankind. He's had his enough. It's enough. He said, I need somebody to go in, cross over, take out these spirits so the land can be filled with the glory of God, the presence of God, the power of God, so a covenant people can walk in justice and righteousness. You think God is blinking at the injustice of our nations? You think God is blinking at the sins of our nations? Oh, he's only waiting for a church to arise and draw the swords of righteousness and begin to take out the powers of darkness. Shout three words. Revival. Shout it. Awakening. Reformation. I close. There are two aspects of the fullness of revival. Awakening and reformation. It's important that we understand this so we can take on the fullness of revival. The mantle and the responsibility that it comes from wearing a mantle of revival. It's not a play thing. 
It's not a spiritual toy to bring us joy. It can do all those things. But let's get to the heart, bottom line of it. We understand revival always begins in the church. We talked about that last week. Revival comes to the church. When the church is on its last breath, God raises up a remnant of intercessors who cry out for revival. This has been in times past. Until God comes and he saturates whole communities in the church with his spirit and his presence. So revival, when we say revival, that always has to do with the church. Especially has to do with the church first. It's God bringing judgment to his house. Getting his church ready to cross over to enact judgment. Over ruling spirits who have been unchallenged for decades. So when revival begins in the church, then as revival grows and you move into the fullness of it, whatever that looks like, it begins to spill over. And it it begins to spill over into the wider of culture. So the culture of the church that is revived, that is alive, full of the spirit and fire of God, begins to spill out. Into the dark places. And it takes on these characteristics of awakening and reformation. You, you, you don't have to plan it. You just got to understand it. You can't organize it and make it happen. It, it's, it's an organic move of the God. It's always, always go back. How deep will we let God go? How deep? Of consecration and surrender. Can we give him? Can we give him enough where he can actually cause us to begin to spill out into the darkness? That it can't be contained within ourselves and within our churches. See, when you talk about awakening and reformation, awakening is about the transformation of souls. Reformation is about the transformation of society. When true spiritual awakening happens, we've had two in our nation. We're believing for the third great awakening, but we'll never see it until the fullness of revival is tapped into by the church. And the church finally comes to the place of surrender. And, and, and pastors and the five-fold ministry begin to give up their churches and place them at the foot of the cross and say, God, revive this dead thing. Make this dead thing live. So that when revival begins to reach a fullness, some point, some point, that it begins to splash over into awakening. And awakening is a beautiful, powerful time because awakening is when God begins to unleash his convicting power, not just in the church. Now it is released outside of the church and unbelievers all over this, the, the area that's been saturated with revival. Now there is a, a, the spirit of awakening and sinners dead, drop dead, living in the depths of darkness. No God 
God-caring people, all of a sudden, their minds are awakened and they think, why am I doing here? There must be something more. There must be a God. And the convicting power of the Holy Spirit reaches down to a dark, hard sinner's heart and begins to break away decades of sin and rebellion and hatred. And God begins to awaken them to his grace and to his mercy and to his love and brings them out of the darkness into the light. And then they come flooding into the churches and the churches are filled with crazy, radical, praising, shouting, healing, devil casting out people. Oh, you ought to understand because when revival hits a church, it praises different. When a revival hits a church, it prays different. When a revival hits a church, they preach different. When revival comes, they pray. Everything changes. And when God hits a dead, drop, dark sinner, everything changes and they're all in. Some of you have been waiting for years to go all in, but they're going to go in in a moment. Somebody shout awakening. Ah. And when you have a church in revival and you have a nation or a region in awakening, reformation begins to take place. Now society has changed because the greater culture is the church. We don't have to get political. We just got to be righteous. I'm not trying to change the political system. I'm just trying to get righteous people in the right place. Unrighteous people don't know what to do with ruling spirits. We define revival here as revival is the sustaining presence and power of God to transformation. Finney, who I've mentioned many times, who is known as, as the father of modern revivalism, who, was, who had great impetus in the Second Great Awakening, he said this, he said revivalism, which is what is revivalism is someone that has experienced revival, true revival, and go all in, they tend to carry it and become a, not just a product of it, but they tend to create it wherever they go. So he says revivalism is increased spiritual favor in a local church with global effect. Global effect being reformation. They say about him that he unleashed a mighty impulse of social reform. And he did this by insisting that new converts are those that are coming out of the awakening to make their lives count for the kingdom of God or to go all in. This was unusual in his day. 
Not so much today, but his day was unusual. That's why they called him the father of revivalism. You see, Finney himself in his time brought great influence upon ending slavery. Racism. Women's rights. Child labor. He took stands in righteousness and revival against these things that were opposed to the word of God. And it brought reformation. Are y'all with me? I'm really, I'm almost done. <laughs> Finney was, 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 was an amazing guy because watch him. I'm going to show you where how revival, awakening, reformation work together in that they say Finney could walk into a crowd of people and uh, he, he, he went into one a business of one place. I believe it was some kind of sewing business. He was doing revival in this city. He walked into this business, but he was invited by the owner of the business and he walks in and everybody's just kind of doing what they're doing. And all of a sudden, a woman looks at him and realizes who he is. Oh, he's the evangelist here in our town preaching revival, looks at him and begins to mock him to her partner. They say that he looked at her. They say the conviction that he carried as a revivalist would cause unsaved people to come under the influence of righteousness regardless of their relationship with Jesus Christ. <laughs> oh Lord, send the power just now and baptize everyone. He just looked at that woman and everything shifted. He looked at that woman and all of a sudden her machine stopped. Her neighbor's machine stopped and they begin to cry out, what must I do to be saved? And before long, they shut everything down. Finney preached and everybody got saved. But the point I want you to see is this. Even though people aren't even interested in coming under the redemption of Jesus Christ, if the weight of conviction gets on them, they will do what's right. Oh, yeah, yeah, the Holy Ghost is strong enough to even convict a sinner to do what's right. It goes against, yeah, yeah, yeah. They will begin to do moral things out of the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Are y'all hearing what I'm talking about? Uh, we may not be able to get them all saved. We'll do the best we can. But those that refuse to be saved, we pray conviction on them that they will do what is right. Many of us are struggling with what I'm saying because we had never been under the conviction of the Holy Ghost. But I've been under the conviction of the Holy Spirit before. I've had his weightiness on me. And I'm going to tell you, it's like the hounds of hell won't let go until you do what's right. I'm telling you, reformation is coming. Oh, our nation will never be a perfect nation. It will not all be filled with all righteousness. But I guarantee you the things that matter to God are getting ready to shift. If the church will have revival. Stand all over this house. Musicians come. 
My concern, church, is that the church at large in America and around the world at large, the most of us, most churches are not in a position to bring reformation because we have not experienced revival. There's a lot of people that want reformation, but they're trying to skip revival and awakening. We've been doing that for 40 years. And I believe the fault lies in the pulpits of our churches. Because pastors and preachers of fivefold ministry. We've stopped calling the church back to the altar of consecration. Fresh start church. This can get heavy. God will not make us pick up the mantle of revival. He will not force it upon us. But we've had enough prophetic words to know and prophetic dreams to know God has laid it out before us. And he's saying, Fresh Star Church, Will you pick up the greater mantle? How far will you go? How much will you surrender? <laughs> Listen to me. Look at me. Nobody moving around. We can't let revival die. If we do, there's going to be nothing to fuel awakening and reformation. Don't mimic it. Don't mock it. I'm talking to church leadership. I'm talking to, I'm talking to you. We have been mantled to do this. We're at a crossing over consecration all in what God is listening for again is yes I'm all in God yes I'm all in I don't know I just there's nothing worth holding on to y'all there's nothing worth holding on to God has given us a privilege, as I'm sure there are others, to say yes, to carry this mantle. I feel the Spirit of God calling us back. I feel the Spirit of God calling us back. 
back to the altar of consecration. Tomorrow I will show you amazing things. You're crossing over. Thank you for listening in to the Fresh Start Church podcast, where we exist to influence a nation with revival. You can order Pastor Kim's book, Doorkeepers of Revival, at doorkeepersofrevival.com. And you can listen to Fresh Start Revival Worship on Apple Music, Spotify, or wherever you stream your music. Thank you for tuning in. We'll see you next time.